well, when you when you're driving there, you're very exciting because you're like, oh, I really want to put that worm on the hook and start fishing. That's producer Taylor Quimby's son, Finn. He and Taylor go fishing a lot. Do Do you have a favorite fish to catch? Um, pike and pickerel. Hmm. Because they fight. Yeah, they fight hard. I do not fish, but thanks to a little help from this particular angler, I think I've maybe come to understand those who do. It feels good to actually cast mm-hmm. a fishing rod. And once you once you hook a fish, the day usually gets better. <laughs> But despite what you see on fishing reality TV, it is not all about landing some monster for the trophy photo for your social media profile. Even for kids, it's stillness, wild places, quiet, and yes, occasionally a bit of excitement. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes you catch stuff, and sometimes you don't. This scene, which I created mostly with stock sound effects, is totally artificial. And believe it or not, some of the fish that Finn has caught, they're artificial too. Okay, so how's this next part go? So Tyler will get in, and we'll scoop up all the fish in the seine, and then we'll take them a net full of time weigh them, and then they'll go right back into the truck so we know the weight that we're releasing into the water body. Every year, my home state, New Hampshire, which has only a little more than a million people in it, raises more than a million trout in concrete tanks. In terms of numbers, it goes brook trout, uh, rainbows, and then browns, for us at least. Those trout are then loaded into trucks and driven all over the state. I think I finally got rid of the mouse smell in here. They got into the heating fence <laughs> during the winter. If the water body is close enough to the road, the driver of the truck unrolls giant fire hoses called slides, and a whole truck full of fish, more than a thousand per load, can drain out all at once. Gonna go unravel this thing. Putting my hand on it here. Oh, just felt a fish. <laughs> a little wriggly body. Hey, buddy. If the water body is not close to the road, they walk them out, one netful at a time. If it's a little farther... We load the fish into a plastic bag with some water, and then we'll blow it up with pure oxygen, and we'll... Uh, We'll tie the bag off and tape it and put it in a backpack and send them off. They pack them out. And if the water body is really far from the road... Yes, indeed, they fly them out. Okay, so we've got a couple of guys. They are ferrying five-gallon buckets to the helicopter. In a helicopter. Dumping fish in. How many fish in that thing? Uh, I believe it was uh, about 70 pounds. 
helicopter. Off she goes. All of this just for a bit of stillness. Punctuated by a few seconds of excitement. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. People love fishing for trout. They love it so much that they're willing to go to insane lengths to catch them. But what should we make of the fact that much of that experience of fishing for trout is just a facsimile of what it once was and may actually be bad for the very same fish that we so love to catch? There's a story we tell about why we stock fish. I heard it from a lot of anglers. We stock fish because we want people to fall in love with them. I'd say it was probably around eighth grade or maybe freshman year in high school. I really got into fishing. I would just, me and my friends would ride our bikes down to the river pretty much every single day. And we would fish for stock trout. I mean, that was mainly what we caught. That idyllic youth was enjoyed by Zach Curran. He works at a 100-year-old fish hatchery run by New Hampshire Fish and Game. I interviewed him last spring while he drove a truck loaded with 700 pounds of brown trout, a species native to Europe, by the way, to be dumped into a pond in northern New Hampshire. Eighth grade Zach did not realize it when he was pedaling to the fishing hole, but this was the first step in a staircase that people who love fish and rivers hope more of us will climb. That first step fish that are easy to catch, easy to get to. Yeah, there was a lot of fish around in the springtime. It was really, it was a lot of fun. It was, that's definitely what got me into it. The next step is to start to explore. I got my license and everything, and I got like a small boat. Down in that area of the state, there's a lot of small bass ponds, and it was pretty much just like unlimited. Like, you could never fish them all. Bass, by the way, is another introduced species around here. Historically, they were more of like a Mississippi River basin fish, but they've been self-sustained in our lakes and rivers since the late 1800s when they were introduced willy-nilly by fishermen. From here, as anglers get more experienced, they start to look for challenges. That's the most fun time to me is like when you're really starting to learn a new type of fishing. This, for many fishers, leads them to harder fish to catch. New experiences, like hiking into a pond for miles. To go out to like a remote pond, like, may not even care if he catches a fish, he just wants to like, the remote experience. And in theory, that angler who started out as just a kid riding their bike to a fishing hole is going to wind up being a full-throated supporter of fish and rivers. I mean, how could you sit for hours not catching fish alongside a free-flowing mountain stream and not start to value it? According to this story, that's why we stock trout. Because abundant, easy-to-catch fish get people excited about nature and protecting it. Just get them to appreciate wild things, and I think that's absolutely a good thing. (laughs) So that's one story of why we stock fish. We use the artificial to make you care about the actual. The tame fish teach you to care about the wild ones. But that's not the only story. 
There are few cautionary tales of environmental impoverishment in which the world we have today is revealed to be a pale shadow of the sheer teeming abundance that once existed, like the stories of what our oceans and rivers used to be like. Today, we're talking about stocking trout, but one such cautionary tale that it helps to understand is the story of another fish, the Atlantic salmon. By the mid-1800s, salmon had all been wiped out from the rivers of southern New England. Fishermen were freaked out, and so Congress created the first U.S. Fish Commission. The first commissioner was a trained naturalist named Spencer Baird, and he came up with what he thought was a win-win situation. Don't regulate fishing. Don't preserve habitat. Create hatcheries. Raise salmon eggs from the West Coast and grow them indoors. You're, you're in increasing the survival of the eggs and the fry, the juveniles, because you're protecting them from uh, flash floods and uh, predators and uh, all, all the natural sources of mortality for uh, wild fish out in the stream. That's Jim Lekatowicz. He's a salmon biologist and historian out in Oregon. The idea was that all of those extra fish that you get by cheating nature, beating nature, producing more fish than a natural system could on its own, could be released back on the East Coast. And in so doing, you'd avoid having to make any sort of trade-off. What Baird really was telling uh, the people is that hatcheries would be a substitute for conservation. You didn't have to worry about fighting against dams or logging or irrigation withdrawals. Uh, you would just build a hatchery. And this enthusiasm included a lot of moving fish around. Here's Helen Neville, the lead scientist for Trout Unlimited, a group that works on the conservation of cold water fisheries like trout and salmon. And there were, you know, the U.S. Fish Commission set up these, you know, hatcheries all across the country with these modified trains where the trains were, you know, had, had hatchery tanks in them, and those trains would crisscross the country. They would go from Maine out to California and just pick up fish along the way and, like, you know, give them out to angling clubs and give them out to hatcheries um, all across the country. And so fish got really mixed broadly way, way earlier than any of us, I think, have, have really understood in a lot of cases back in the 1800s as the beginning of this practice. There, there were so many salmon uh, in the Northwest that, he was using these cars to ship eggs to the East Coast, and he was planting salmon eggs in places where you wouldn't ever uh, expect a salmon to survive. And perhaps unsurprisingly, many of the hatchery salmon just never came back. Hatchery fish are artifacts of human technology, and they lack the, the intrinsic value of a wild salmon because the wild salmon is... Is, comes from a natural ecological process that has adapted it and that has uh, been part of its long evolutionary history. Drives it to be a better fish. Yeah. And the hatchery, all of that is stripped away. When it came to Atlantic salmon, at least, this indiscriminate stocking never worked. I found a report to the National Research Council that contained this paragraph. Despite 130 years of stocking, using a variety of life stages, and releasing about 120 million Atlantic salmon, the systematic decline in run sizes has not been reversed. That raises the question of whether hatchery stocking has ever had a substantial impact on populations of Atlantic salmon. That was in 2002, 
in 2012, after many years of putting millions of hatchery-raised salmon into the Connecticut River here in New England, and only seeing as few as 40 of them return as adults the next year, the federal government finally pulled the plug on the hatchery program on that river. Two salmon hatcheries are still going in Maine, where some of the last Atlantic salmon runs in America are now listed as endangered species. So, in this other version, hatcheries were a story that we told ourselves about how we could have it all. And we were wrong. Hatcheries may have started with salmon, but it spread to other fish pretty quickly. Rainbow trout, which are native out west, were brought to the east coast. Brook trout, native to the east, were planted out west. And brown trout, native to Europe, were plunked into streams all across North America. For better or worse, occasionally this practice would work as intended, and wild, self-sustaining populations of fish would establish themselves. Today, many of our lakes and rivers are chock full of non-native species that have been there so long they're sometimes considered naturalized, and we don't even question their presence. When it comes to trout, both things have happened. Sometimes introduced trout just die, sometimes they flourish, and are even considered invasive. So why... Sometimes, do certain fish fail so spectacularly when we grow them in a tank? Most people, like you said, think a fish is a fish. Well, you know, the agency puts these fish in here, and we've got these brook trout. They're brook trout, and that's what our native fish is. But it's clear from these studies that a trout is not a trout is not a trout. Helen Neville again of Trout Unlimited. Most of our salmon and trout populations are locally adapted, and they have evolved to have very good strategies for dealing with that environment. So they fit where they are. Local trout know how to survive in their home waters. Hatchery trout don't. There are a bunch of reasons for this, but here's just one example. If, for the first year of your fishy little life, every time a shadow gets cast over your pool, the next thing that happens is food starts to rain down from above, you will learn to swim up when a shadow is cast over a pool. This is not a great survival strategy if you want to avoid being eaten by a heron or a raccoon. But when it comes to the kind of trout that were in the truck or the helicopter, it kind of doesn't really matter. Today, there are various hatchery practices. Um, the sort of typical recreation-style hatchery that uh, is you know, really ha- mandated to create a mass of fish to put in waters to, um, to surf the angling public, um, you know, where they go out and just stock hundreds of thousands, millions of fish. And so those recreational hatcheries are focused on numbers. Now, if there are any hatchery nerds listening out there, they will know that there are hatcheries and there are hatcheries. Conservation hatcheries, like the two that are still trying to keep Atlantic salmon alive, try really hard to combat the problems we've talked about and raise fish that will survive. Recreational hatcheries, the ones that we've mostly been talking about, know that the fish are unlikely to make it, but don't really care. For instance, sometimes we're dumping trout into water that we know gets so hot every year that it will kill trout. The whole point is for people to catch these fish and take them home and eat them. But where it gets more complicated is when we're dumping them into rivers and lakes where not only can trout survive, but we know they do. You know, when you put fish, for instance, brown trout in a native brook trout population, Um, Those brown trout can compete for food 
uh, and for space. They can outcompete uh, fish and push them out of the cold water areas that the brook, native brook trout might be relying on more and, more and more in the future with climate change. In other words, it's not just whether or not those fish survive in the wild. It's that just by being there for a little while, they might actively be making it harder for wild fish to survive in the wild, too. Big hatchery fish can eat little juvenile fish. Hatchery fish can introduce disease. And if they do manage to survive and start reproducing, they can set off a familiar chain of cause and effect sadness. The classic example here is Yellowstone Lake, home to its own population of Yellowstone cutthroat trout. In 1994, non-native lake trout somehow made their way into the water and started eating the juvenile cutthroats. The cutthroats swam and hunted in shallower water than the lake trout and spawned higher up in the Yellowstone River. So as they declined, osprey and eagles that used to eat them when they were in the shallows disappeared, and bears that snacked on them during their spawning runs no longer frequented the riverside. And it can have all sorts of cascading effects beyond just what's going on directly with those fish. <laughs> it's, it's almost like we've taken this whole complex system that is that in, that allows brook trout to exist and we've we've just sort of like turned it into the model T production line and, and we're just like churning out fish to jam into that river. I know. It is. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you're doing this story because when you kind of step back and look at the scenario, it, is, it really is. It's, it's really an, an interesting sort of cultural story. I mean, the issue is people just simply didn't understand the impacts that that would have. They, you know, why wouldn't it be awesome to have a, a brook trout in a western stream? And why shouldn't you have European brown trout in your eastern stream? You know, it's you can go catch five fish a day. Yeah, yeah. Be, you know, I can go over to Scotland to to angle brown trout there. But why it would be so great if I could do it in my own home water here in Virginia? And and that was understandable, you know. And I think there was a big political push back then to do that. It was like the great yeah. thing that we could provide for our public. And here in the East, that's kind of the mindset we've still got. States all up and down the East Coast are still stocking hatchery fish in places where there are or could be wild fish, because that's what anglers want. But maybe, just maybe, that's starting to change. See, the, the thing about stocking is it creates this facade where when you hit it right, you catch a lot of fish. Um, but then when you, when you hit it wrong, you catch very few fish. What does a world without stocked fish look like? That's after the break. You want to try? I'll give it a try. I'll hold uh, your microphone. Yeah. Welcome back to Outside In. This is a story about fish and fishing and fish stocking. And yes, here is the part where I go fishing. Oh, did you see him come up and look at oh, there he is. <laughs> Okay, it may sound like I was having fun, but really I was embarrassing myself because I was really bad at it and the rocks were slippery and I could have fallen and actually this is a very hard job, okay? Leave me alone. <laughs> Crash course indeed. Squirted out. I got him. Oh, good. <laughs> also, here's just a random thing that I learned while doing this story that maybe will anger the fly fishers who hear this when I say it. You don't need to go fly fishing to catch trout or salmon or any of the fish that people fly fish for. Fly fishing is just a different, more challenging, more expensive way of catching a fish that is not necessarily superior to any other type of fishing. It is fun, though. And my guide on this day was Nate Hill. I see one actually sitting, good-sized one. I think that's a fish. Right there. 
Yep, he's coming for it. Nate's a young guy, part of the seasonal tourist economy that makes it so hard to live full-time in beautiful places like this. He works at the ski areas in the winter. He fishes catch and release only. Single hook, no barbs. He's part of a very small, brandy new organization called the Native Fish Coalition. It started two years ago, and it has chapters in Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. They want more water bodies to be designated wild trout waters. That would mean they'd be catch and release only and no stocking. We're on a river that they are trying to have set aside in this way, in the White Mountains. One that he prefer we not name for fear of attracting a whole ton of anglers that are interested, in his words, in killing trout. It's a river that's really easy to get to and is stocked in its lower reaches. And yet, it still has a lot of wild trout in it. Woo, another one. We started fishing where the stocked and wild trout mixed together. And at first, all he was catching was hatchery fish. Looks like somebody like took a heat gun to the dorsal fin and fried it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Occasionally, some folks at Fishing Game will tell you that it's not possible to tell if you've caught a wild trout or not. But many anglers will snort at that idea. He's already losing weight. Oh, it's skinny, that's what you mean. Yeah, they're used to getting food fed to them. So they tend to, they tend to lose weight if they don't have a lot of food. Pellets being dropped. Well, and they put them in at uh, such high densities. You got 50 fish in a pool. There's not going to be enough food to feed all those fish. It's not natural, you know. The river in question has a waterfall not far from where we started. It's a barrier the stocked trout can't get past. So after catching a bunch of hungry, skinny, domesticated fish, Nate and I sloshed up to some of the higher reaches of the river. Oh, that was a good one. There he is. Okay, let's see if we can determine <laughs> the difference. So that's about the same size, right? Yeah. Of those other fish. But if you look at this fish, his body in proportion to himself is a lot more of what you'd think. It's not, he doesn't look like an arrow. It looks more like an oval. <laughs> oh, and I see what you're talking about, that, that dorsal fin. Yeah, the dorsal fin's very square. And all the other fins, see how pointed those fins are? Yeah, oh my God. And the actual, the skin, you can tell the skin color. There's no abrasions on the skin. It doesn't look rough, it's very smooth. It's just a healthier looking fish. Yeah, and when you let them go, they swim away much faster. <laughs> yeah, like a dart. The other oh, and now I can see them there. Now that I've sort of like got my eyes on. Yeah. See, the, the thing about stalking is, it creates this facade where when you hit it right, you catch a shit ton of fish, you catch a lot of fish. Um, but then when you, when you hit it wrong, you catch very few fish. So for like three weeks, it's great. Yeah, until they stock it again, and then they stock it again, and then it's great again. And so you end up with less fish in the long run than you would if you managed it for a wild population. Here's what the Native Fish Coalition is pushing for. They want Fish and Game to stop dumping stocked fish into so many rivers, starting with the headwaters, the little mountain streams that are the nurseries that would feed wild trout down into the bigger rivers. And then eventually, if they can show that cutting out all the dang stocking actually makes for better fishing, then in certain places you could move down the watershed, stop stocking bigger and bigger streams, 
until you get all the way to the main stem. And you can see when you look at these nursery habitat, how many wild rook trout there are in these rivers. Like it kind of makes sense, you know. And I think the best way to get people on board is to is to focus on small native trout water, not you know the bigger rivers. Because yeah, like a lot of people don't see can't see the the light through at the end of the tunnel. Stocking has changed quite a bit over time. Um, historically, fisheries was a relatively wealthy division, and basically if it was wet, it was stocked. Um, overfishing was a huge issue. Non-native species got brought in, and literally there were a variety of locations that probably biologically should have never been stocked, but um, historically we had money, we had time, and we had anglers that were interested, and so fish went in. This is Diane Timmons, the cold water fisheries biologist for the state of New Hampshire. She's been doing her job for more than 20 years, and she's one half of a husband and wife fish and game power couple. Her husband is the state's bear biologist. In this interview, she spoke with the refreshing candor of someone who knows their stuff, is comfortable with their facts, and secure in their job. And can we just dwell on something that Diane just said, but said a little too quickly? She said that historically, if it was wet, it was stocked. Talking to her, my takeaway was stocking has kind of trained anglers to expect the artificial, and they'd be disappointed if we stopped. We are the granite state, so our productivity, unfortunately, our productivity is less than our neighboring states, so all of them less than our neighboring states and that we have granite and so we don't have a lot of calcium in our waters. So generally overall our brook trout and our trout species tend to be much smaller because the food sources are smaller. So I'll tell you our statewide average um, based on a few decades of data at this point and our average size is 3.62 inches. So New Hampshire's not not really known for its larger size brook trout. And so the larger the fish, the happier the angler. Diane and the Native Fish Coalition are engaged in this whole back and forth over which waters should or shouldn't be catch and release with no stocking. It's a whole thing. It's very New Hampshire. I'm not going to drill down. What I think is interesting here is they actually agree that stocking hatchery trout on top of wild trout is bad for the wild trout. Where they disagree is the question of what's best for anglers. We have a lot of areas where we stock brook trout. We, we have a lot of areas where we stock, period. But one of the things is that a lot of these areas have wild brook trout in them, which leads us to the next latest challenge in life, right, is that there's this whole big um, push right now to not stock on top of wild fish, which, you know, makes sense, right, except that in New Hampshire, my fish at 3.62 inches is not exactly satisfying. <laughs> so I have the unfun challenge of how do you satisfy your angler, but biologically, you know, do something for the system. So that's kind of, it's, it's tough. So both sides know and accept that stocking hatchery trout on top of existing wild populations is bad for the wild populations. And, in fact, hatchery fish compete with our wild fish and probably make them smaller. But we keep doing it because we like catching the big fish, which to me feels sort of like we're running on a treadmill. 
but we're afraid to step off because it's going too fast. Nate about this. The idea that there aren't enough people showing up to fish and game meetings, clutching their rods, and demanding less stocking, smaller fish. To what extent do you think this has to be about the culture of angling changing so that anglers are demanding some, like a different kind of experience? I think that's really 90% of it right now. I, I mean, if you don't, because the state, the state's management is based on uh, what the public wants. They will, they, they will say that 60% of their constituents want more stocking, so there has to be enough blowback to prove otherwise. There have to be enough people saying, no, there's no reason to stock these smaller rivers. And I think the best way to get people on board is to, is to focus on small native trout water, not you know the bigger rivers because yeah like a lot of people don't see can't see the the light through at the end of the tunnel i mean the issue is people just didn't have the context to know what they had lost and at the time when a lot of this was started i mean most you know many of these plants were at least initiated in the late 1800s people just simply didn't understand the impacts that that would have this is helen neville again the trout unlimited scientist She's from Idaho. New England is not like the West Coast. Our fish were on the receiving end of uncontrolled colonial European fishing practices for a really long time. And there have been a couple generations now that have had no memory of what the rivers and lakes used to be like. Which means that some of these ideas about stocking are still kind of fringy out here. But Helen says there's a lot less fish stocking out West. And some of the places that are still stocking have very different practices than here in the East. For instance, in some states, they might only stock ponds and lakes, but not rivers. Other programs may only stock fish that are sterile and can't reproduce. So why the East-West divide? It took Europeans longer to get out west. And so in the west, before stocking practices became entrenched, there were people who could remember the old rivers, the way it used to be, who spoke up. People just didn't grow up with understanding what they may have lost, that they see a fish there and it might even be a brook trout. And, and that's, that's good enough. You know, all of this needs to, needs to be put in a cultural context, and it's not just about the science. But I think it's, you know, really important to put it in perspective of trying to come up with some smart strategies for where we can use hatcheries productively um, to serve those different socio-political needs um, versus where we can really try and prioritize these native populations for conservation. The U.S. stocks hundreds of millions of trout each year at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. Here in New Hampshire alone, it's a little more than a million fish for a bit more than $3 million a year. That's like three bucks a fish in order to create an entire parallel life history for a creature that, for most of them, almost entirely eliminates natural waters from their lives except for the few weeks or maybe months before they're caught by a fisherman or eaten by a predator. Now, it's true that in some places, water that wouldn't have fish otherwise, for instance, this is mostly benign, but artificial. But in other spots, it's actively bad for wild fish. So what do you do when you learn that the thing that you love, fishing, is hurting the thing that you love, fish? That's the hammer, right? So that 
Same machine, same excavator, but instead of a bucket, they've got a basically a giant jackhammer. And that's what they put on the concrete, and it just goes boom, 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 boom. I believe that in this case, both stories we tell ourselves about fish stocking are true. Yes, it started as a techno fix that allowed us to ignore the way we were treating rivers, but also, yes, getting people into fishing, some of them starting on stocked fish, means that eventually some of them will start to deeply care about the grueling job of saving habitat. So, um, before we get down there, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Ron Rhodes, river steward for the Connecticut River Conservancy. Ron's also a big fisherman. He used to help out as a volunteer for Trout Unlimited, Helen Neville's organization. I met him in Norwich, Vermont, just over the border with New Hampshire. How long have you been doing this job? Seven years since Tropical Storm Irene, and this is our eighth dam removal. Eight dams in seven years, it seems... Eight dams in actually about four or five years, yeah. First couple of years I hadn't gotten addicted to these things yet. It's an addiction? Yeah, it is an addiction. <laughs> it's really satisfying work, partially because it's permanent and it's, you know, we're not building anything or putting a culvert back in the stream. We're taking it back to its natural state. And so it, it really is like you get them done and it's just like, when's the next one? All right, so let's walk down. We can yeah. talk maybe more after we've seen the work. And not, a, not only is it an addiction, but there are thousands of these old dams, not only in Vermont and New Hampshire, but all over New England. So we have our work cut out for us, or a lifetime of work, if you want to think of it that way. Everywhere I look, there is more and more river restoration happening. Here in the east, out west, in Alaska, everywhere. This is a category of work that pretty much everybody can get on board with. The six little states that constitute New England have over 14,000 dams. Most of them are tiny and abandoned, like this one. They used to power grist and sawmills in the colonial years. Or, like this one, were built as drinking water supplies in the early 1900s and then abandoned in the 70s and 80s when towns started drilling wells to supply drinking water. This dam is in the middle of the woods. No houses around. On your average day, probably no one sees this stretch of river except the fish. Right now, the biggest issue here is that all this sediment has filled in, and there's just not that much depth. So the only fish that would be living in a place like this right now are tiny little minnows or maybe tiny little brook trout. But as soon as they get big, they would be moving, hopefully they would try to move into better territory, deeper water with more structure and more food. To remove this dam, one excavator has to jackhammer out the concrete a few inches at a time, while another digs up the sediment that is gradually exposed on the riverbank as the water level drops so that it doesn't flush downstream and screw up some habitat farther down. A dump truck continually runs back and forth, carting away the extra sand. It's a big project. Yeah, it'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of 320-plus, you know, all, all in. That's 320,000 plus dollars to remove this one little dam on one little tributary of one river. Um, and then there are thousands of dams in New England. There are, yes. I don't know if Ron started fishing by catching hatchery trout, but I do know that Nate Hill the Native Fish Coalition fly fisherman from earlier. So maybe this is a stretch, 
But in a funny way, if we do ever change the way we stock here in the East, restore the habitat, and let wild trout populations recover, it may be that stocking actually was something that helped to get us there, eventually. But to turn the tables one last time and play devil's advocate once again, this assumes that kids will only start to love the outdoors if they catch an 8-inch trout once an hour and meet the fishing game standard of a satisfied angler. But maybe we're not giving kids enough credit. There is bad days of fishing, but, like, they're not totally bad. What do you mean? It's not necessarily catching the fish. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to go catch some fish. You would say, I'm... I'm don't go fishing because you never know. You don't know if you're going to catch one or not. So if you don't catch a fish, it's still okay? Yes, that's, that's part of fishing. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Special thanks to Bob Mallard, Paul Dosher, John McGee, Jeff Day, Warren Winders, Mark Taylor, and Emily Bastian for explaining fishing to me. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was made by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 